Good morning, guys. Y'all can go ahead and grab a seat. How's everyone doing? Yeah? Let's go. I like that. A little fist pump action. It's beautiful. Awesome. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, if we've not met yet, my name is Gentry. I'm on the pastoral and teaching team here. Happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers out there. Um, in the theme of Mother's Day, Josh, our campus pastor, is not here today because his wife, Leah, they had their baby on Friday. And so, yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so just super excited for them. Um, so just keep them in your prayers as they've got new baby adjusting to new life as parents. I'm sure we'll have a meal train here ready probably by next Sunday. Um, so keep an eye out for that. If you wanna help, just like bless them, take them a meal. We'll have all that set up here soon. But wanted to just share that good news with you guys about Josh and Leah and baby. Uh, her name is, uh, golly, I'm breaking, Leona. Yes, I was, I was like, I have Roe. I have the middle name, Leona Roe Soloway. Um, but yeah, cool. Well, if you have a Bible, feel free to open to Philippians chapter one. That's where we're gonna be this morning because uh, we are currently in the midst of a teaching series called To Live is Christ. And in that teaching series, we are just walking through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, we're gonna be in verses 12 through 14 this morning. Does anyone wanna, do we have a brave soul that wants to read those verses out loud for us? Someone projects. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I got you. Let's go, Sam. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Appreciate that, man. I vividly remember my first day of high school. My dad took me and my neighbor, Lakin. We grew up together. We were in the same grade. We carpooled all the way from like kindergarten up to when we both started driving. But I remember that morning really vividly. The two of us, or the three of us, were all in my dad's uh, maroon F-150 King Ranch and driving to school. And I was nervous heading into a new school, especially going from middle school to high school. That's like a big leap. I was not looking forward to being on the bottom of the food chain again, right? Like in eighth grade, you are, you are the king of the castle. You are the oldest, you look down on everyone. And then the next year at 14 year old you enters into high school. And did anyone else feel like when you went to high school that all of a sudden you were in school with like adults? Was that just me? But you look up to seniors. The difference between a freshman and a senior when you're a freshman is staggering. Like 14 year old me had never had a reason to bring a razor to my face. And now I was in class with guys with full on beards. It was shocking for me. Anyway, I remember driving up to the school with my dad. And as we were approaching, there's just this mob of people walking down the street. It was the senior class on their way to go like spray paint and tag an underpass. It was a school tradition we had where on the first day of school, the seniors would go spray paint like class of 2011 on a nearby underpass. 
And as we passed by them, my dad slowed down to like keep them safe, you know, safety, narrow road. And as we were driving past them, these seniors, these full-blown adults in my eyes, began banging on the car and chanting, fresh meat, fresh meat. And we were terrified, me and Lakin. We like looked at each other. I'm sure our eyes were like wide, the back sweats start just like, what is going on? What are we getting ourselves into? And we drove up to the school and we proceed with our first day of high school, along with all the bearded adults that terrified us. And needless to say, I was a nervous wreck that day. Just, just so like a fish out of water, nervous in the hallways of those schools. And I was talking about this with my dad just a few weeks ago. And he reminded me that before school had started, I had asked him about like if I could transfer to a different school. I'd heard things about the school I was going to um, and was like kind of nervous. And he was like, no, just go and try it. And so then a few weeks later into the school year, he came and he asked me, he was like, hey, do you still want to transfer schools? And I don't remember this interaction. This is all from him. But he said, when he asked that question, I was like, oh no, like everything is great. Everything's fine. I just needed a few weeks to get in and get used to it. Paul here in Philippians, he's writing to the church in Philippi and he's writing from prison, most likely from a prison in Rome. And this was a scenario that I'm sure for Paul was pretty nerve wracking to enter into. And so the Philippian church, they hear about this news that Paul's in jail. And so they wrote him a letter that I'm sure read something like, dude, Paul, I hear you're in prison. Like we are worried for you. Those Roman prisons are not a joke. How are you doing? And here we get Paul's first response. We're at 12 verses in, finally out of his intro and into his response to the Philippians where he says, no, yeah, like I'm good. Everything is actually great. Now, the difference between, you know, ninth grade me and Paul here is that ninth grade me actually was facing no real danger in school. I just was scared. But Paul, he faces real danger. He's in a Roman prison and he's facing possibly death. But in the face of that, he has this outlook, this seemingly unnatural outlook. He says, I'm all right. Everything is actually going really well. It's great. And he gives two main reasons for that. Because it's served to advance the gospel and it has sparked contagious courage in the hearts of the other believers in Rome. And so this morning, we're just gonna kind of explore what's going on here with Paul. How, why is this his outlook? So let's begin just by talking about the advancement of the gospel that Paul's talking about. See, like I mentioned a second ago, Paul's posture here is uncommon to say the least, right? Like maybe even unnatural. I mean, what person in their right minds in chains and in prison could have this outlook that his response isn't like, oh yeah, like I'm okay, I'm making it, like things are really tough, but I'm surviving. No, his response is like, no, things are actually going better. Things are good and better that I am in chains and behind bars. I mean, anyone in their right mind would have to argue that freedom is better than prison, right? Like, that's just life. Freedom is better than prison. So what's going on here with Paul? 
Freedom's better than prison. That's something that we can relate to here in America in 2023, where personal freedom is one of the highest values that we hold in our culture and in our society. And it has been since the founding of our nation. That's what our nation is built upon. Since the Declaration of Independence was drafted, which states that all people are deserving of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our nation is basically just one giant social experiment unto that end. And that still holds true to this day. All of our political debates are basically one big argument about this. What are our liberties? What are our freedoms? So for us, the idea that Paul's loss of freedom is not just something that he's making it through with a positive outlook or a positive spin on it, but that he legitimately fully sees it as a better option than if he were not in prison at this point in time. That can be something that's difficult for anyone, especially for us here today, to grasp. But Paul, has, he's completely embraced the upside-down reality of the kingdom of Christ. That according to Jesus, the way to life liberty, and happiness is often counterintuitive to our natural instincts, the way we would naturally pursue those things. Life, liberty, freedom, happiness, these are fine, they're fine, even good things. But you see, the way that we have decided to interpret and pursue those things in the modern West are actually fairly misguided and laughably unbiblical often of times. This is what Paul was getting at, what we talked about last week, when he, in his prayer for the Philippians, he says that he's praying that they would be able to discern what is excellent. His prayer was that the Philippian church would be able to discern what is the true source of life, liberty, and happiness. See, the way of Jesus is truly a counterculture, where Jesus, he often taught things like the first shall be last, that the humble, the lowly will be lifted up and exalted and those who are exalted and honored will be humbled and brought low. In one of his invitations to come and follow him, Jesus says that anyone who seeks their life will lose it. And anyone who loses their life for his sake will find it. He's not talking about biological life here necessarily. The word he's using is psyche, this like interior flourishing kind of life. And because Paul's grasp on the upside down kingdom, he's able to say with confidence and with joy that it's actually a great advantage. It's a good thing that he is in prison. Paul's able to embrace such obstacles as opportunities in the paradigm of the upside down kingdom. Paul sees this, there's a couple layers to it. One, he just sees it as a unique opportunity to minister to a people group that he otherwise might not have access to, the Roman Imperial Guard. These people who it's probably a rotation of the same guys day in and day out, build a relationship, speak to them and minister to them. But there's this other deeper layer, I think, where for Paul, no matter where he finds himself, no matter where life leads him, it's an invitation into adventure with God. And I have to wonder how many of us today, if we're being honest, 
would be able to, in Paul's shoes, see the invitation into adventure and ministry that Paul sees. To see something like imprisonment as an invitation into something rather than an obstacle getting in the way of what Paul's really supposed to be doing as a missionary out in the cities and in the larger society. I have to wonder how many of us are currently sitting in a place where God is inviting us into adventure or deeper into his presence, where we can be more completely formed into his image that we're missing because we view it as an obstacle, not an invitation. How many of us are fighting for the platform we think we deserve or the notoriety that we desire or the reach or influence that we think will make things better when God is actually inviting us to think and live upside down, to think and live counter-culturally. How many of us look at the life that we have and compare it to the life that we want to have or think we ought to have and we cry out, woe is me, if not in words, then in our attitude. Or we question God's goodness and faithfulness because the life that we have doesn't look like how we planned or think it ought to look. God, why haven't you answered my prayer yet? God, I thought you were faithful. Why is my business failing? Why did I lose my job? God, I thought you were good. Why, why is my mom sick? But what if God is inviting us into something that we're not hearing? What if the things that we see as obstacles getting in the way of our, quote, best life are actually invitations deeper into the way of Jesus and more fullness of life with him? But we tend to see these things as obstacles, don't we, right? Like we are driven by this need for bigger platforms or to be great or successful or to avoid pain. And we somehow think that because we've decided to follow Jesus that those things are owed to us. And we barter with God. God, if you save my business, I promise I'll be more generous. God, if you give me that break, if you make us popular, I promise I will use that to let people know that you are good. God, if you make me great, I will make you great. I'll make sure all my fans, all my followers, all my subscribers know about you if you do this for me. Following Christ, life with Christ, guys, it's an exhilarating grand adventure. There are opportunities, things that you will get to encounter and see and be a part of following Jesus that are not available elsewhere. And it's beautiful. But life with Christ also has no guarantees of popularity or fame, health, or wealth. It doesn't, it just doesn't. It's kind of like going camping in the Rocky Mountains or climbing a mountain. It's beautiful, gorgeous, awe-inspiring views and it's dangerous. There are bears and other predators in natural dangers. But because of those dangers, so many of us have settled to just sit on our couch and watch National Geographic documentaries about those places than going and experiencing them and living them ourselves. 
living vicariously through the stories and the lives of others that inspire us. Like camping in the Rockies, following Jesus comes with no promises or guarantees of safety, comfort, greatness, success, or popularity. We tend to think that's the case because we have Americanized Jesus. We've made him in our own image and we've asked him to follow us where we wanna go in life instead of saying, Lord, where are you leading me? Where are you taking me? We wanna take him along where we have already decided that we are going instead of seeing where he might have us go instead. In Matthew chapter eight, Jesus is approached by a scribe, like a biblical scholar of his day. And the scribes, I mean, they were gonna sit in the top social tier of society in Jesus's day. This guy probably had a good amount of money, probably a pretty good house. He probably had a pretty good degree of influence in his circles. And he comes to Jesus and he hears his words and he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replies, he says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to rest his head. You're like, okay, Jesus, that's kind of a weird response to someone that says, I want to follow you, right? But that's Jesus' way of saying, great, come on, but, but just so you know, there are no guarantees of the life that you are used to when you follow me. There's no guarantees of comfort or opulence. I mean, I'm a homeless guy traveling around. Jesus' ministry itself was not carried out on massive stages in arenas or stadiums. He wasn't hanging out in green rooms and eating catered meals. His ministry, for the most part, was carried out in the slums of backwater villages in Podunk, Israel. John the Baptist, his ministry was completely operated out of the wilderness, far away from any normal avenues of success. And for Paul, this was not the first time that ministry had landed him in prison. For centuries, followers of Jesus have looked at the lives and ministries of Jesus and John and Paul and concluded that the way up is down. That obscurity and even suffering are often invitations deeper into God's presence. Invitations to be more formed into his image in order to live more intimately and closely with him and experience life with him and to bless the world around us. They're invitations, not obstacles. John the Baptist, he had it right when he said, I must become lesser so that he may become greater. I must decrease so that he may increase. The way up is down. And Paul gets this mindset from Jesus himself. Paul is willing to embrace the cross because Jesus did first. He's willing to embrace prison because Jesus did first. And Paul says, he says, his imprisonment has been an invitation to embrace the cross for the sake of the gospel. And that by embracing this metaphorical cross of his imprisonment, Paul has made the gospel known through his life, through suffering, 
And through humiliation, he displayed and proclaimed the gospel. And speaking about the Roman guards in verse 13, he says, they all know that I am in chains for Christ. Notice he doesn't say I'm in chains because of Christ. He doesn't say it's because I was preaching, I got landed here. That's true. But what his outlook is, is I am in chains for Christ to continue to glorify him. And Paul is so secure in who he is and who God is in what life with God actually looks like. And it, that confidence affords him the ability to stand in the face of trials without complaining or blaming God or questioning his goodness or faithfulness. But he is able to dig deeper into himself and deeper into God and open the door of that invitation. Paul says, I'm here for Christ and I'm here to continue to proclaim Christ and I embrace the cross because Jesus did first. I was trying to, as I was working on this sermon, come up with some like story that everyone could relate to, maybe some like pop level something or a well-known story that like really drove the point home. And I thought of a few things, but they weren't quite what I was looking for. They didn't quite have that punch when it kind of hit me that most of the stories that I feel like would paint this picture are pretty obscure about not well-known people because the people those stories are about were not seeking notoriety. They were living in obscurity. But I was asking God, I was like, is there someone whose story I could share? And, and I thought of Taylor's, my wife, her grandmother, Mal Mal. I'll call her Anne, that's her name, for today's sake, so you don't have to hear me say Mal Mal every time I reference her. But I thought of her, Anne and Vickery, she had five children, three boys and two girls. Her girls' names were Jean and Laurie. Laurie's my mother-in-law. And Jean was born with a rare genetic mutation uh, that only affects women called Rett syndrome. And Rett syndrome, what it does for the first several months, maybe even years of this girl's life, they will develop normally. But eventually, over time, development begins to slow and then regress. And over time, all motor functions are lost and communication skills are lost. By the time my wife Taylor was born, Jean was well into her 30s and had been bedridden for years. And growing up in their house, everyone helped take care of Jean. The boys, uh, Anne's husband Norris, but... No one quite cared for Jean the way that Mama did, the way that Anne did. Anne was Jean's primary caregiver all the days of her life. She changed her clothes, she fed her, she bathed her. Her whole life orbited around taking care of her daughter. Anne fully embraced that cross and she embraced it well with care and grace and love and humility. And she, she was a follower of Jesus and she was so loved by all of her children and grandchildren and even everyone who married into the family. Like she was by far the family favorite 
There wasn't even a question about it. Everyone just loved her. But if you asked everyone, it was like, hey, who in the family looks the most like Jesus? It was hands down, without a doubt, mama. And I have, I'm confident that the reason that is is because mama embraced the cross of taking care of her daughter, Jean. And she viewed it as an invitation, not an obstacle. And in that place of humility and service, taking care of Jean every day, I believe that she, that mama, that Anne came to know Jesus in profoundly intimate ways that couldn't have been found elsewhere. Ways that only come through embracing the cross because of her refusal to see her daughter's disability as being dealt the wrong hand of cards, but to see it as an invitation. The cross is part of what makes Jesus so compelling, isn't it? That he would willingly take on the cross out of love for us. And we so often think that Jesus went to the cross so that we can avoid it, so we don't have to, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Jesus went to the cross because he was leading by example. This is how you love. This is how you walk through life. He was paving the way for his disciples and inviting us into it. And it's in that place when we finally let go of our need for security, our need for control, our need for affection and admiration from others, when we finally release the need to be the architect of our own lives, that we begin to see Jesus more clearly than ever before. When we see not the obstacle, but the invitation the invitation to deeper transformation and intimacy with Christ through obscurity and humility, simplicity and service. And this can look like a lot of things. I mean, an easy, small one is motherhood. I mean, it's Mother's Day. To be a mom is to embrace some level of a cross every single day. Maybe you guys are like, okay, yeah, sure, I hear you, but back to Philippians, right? Like, wouldn't Paul literally have been a more effective missionary if he were not in chains and in prison? Like, just strategically speaking, doesn't it make more sense that Paul would be more effective out in the city, right? Yeah? But according to Paul, no. The answer is no. This, this answer, I mean, you, we have to ask the question, would Jesus's ministry have been more effective if he came down off the cross and went and took over Jerusalem? This is the paradox of the cross. In verse 14, Paul says that his imprisonment has caused the other believers in Rome to speak the gospel more boldly and without fear. Saint Teresa of Lisay was a French Carmelite nun who became a nun at the age of 15. It's really young. And 
Nine years later, she died tragically of illness at the age of 24. And despite her youth, she's become highly honored because she has coined this phrase, this way of being that she coined and called the little way. Is this way of being like Jesus by being unimpressive by the world's standards and leaning into the little things. And she said that it was through the practice of these nothings that she prepared herself to become the fiance of Jesus. Teresa of Lisay understood embracing the cross like Paul did, embracing, as she called it, the little way. And Paul and Teresa, they both understood the paradox of the cross, that it's in our weakness that God has made great. Here's another quote from Teresa that's gonna kind of take us into our landing. She's quoted saying that sufferings gladly born for others convert more people than sermons. That'll preach, won't it? It's true. The cross is the greatest sermon ever preached and it didn't require a single word. Paul's imprisonment for Christ preached to the believers in Rome that no sermon he could have given them would have. And it gave them contagious courage to speak boldly and to proclaim the gospel. And so it's because of this that Paul is able to tell the Philippians, hey, my imprisonment, it has served to advance the gospel. I've gotten to preach to the imperial guard and they've come to know Christ. It's not been an obstacle, it's been an invitation. And it's given contagious courage to our brothers and sisters to speak more boldly. Preaching the gospel is not just the responsibility of myself or Josh or someone who stands up front at a church on Sunday mornings, but preaching the gospel is a responsibility that we all as followers of Jesus carry, to preach the gospel with our lives and to spark contagious courage in the hearts of those who are around us by embracing the invitations of the cross and of the little way. Like Paul, like John, like Jesus, like Teresa, like Mama and so many others that have gone before us. Don't get me wrong, we are supposed to preach the gospel literally like with our words as well, but a gospel proclaimed without embracing the cross is far less compelling. To speak of God's goodness but shy away from his invitation into deeper waters is a missed opportunity. There's so much more goodness to drink from if we're willing to take the dive. And so as we come into kind of our reflection and communion time, I wanna invite you guys to prayerfully answer these questions. And you can do that in groups of three or four if you're comfortable, that's just an invitation. There's no like, you don't have to circle up if you don't want to, but I invite you to circle up and share with others. Like, what are some obstacles in your life that may actually be invitations into deeper waters with God 
and into adventure with him? And what's one way you can say yes to that invitation? And as you guys circle up, kind of discuss, reflect these questions and take communion together. A reminder of what Jesus did embracing the cross for our lives. I'll give you guys a few minutes. Circle up, feel free to move chairs around. You don't have to, it's invitation. And then I'll come back up here in a little bit to wrap us up.